So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media? Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Eagle Moss and the official Star Trek Starships Collection. It's the summer of Trek, and you can win a full year subscription to the Starships Collection at Get your trek on.com slash mission log mission log a roddenberry star trek podcast episode 241 descent and descent part two Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm biological organism Janovis Champion. And I'm biological organism Kenticulus Ray. Each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek, taking it apart for messages, morals, and meanings, and seeing whether the episode holds up today. Hold up, did I say episode? Sometimes it's two. This week, it's Descent and Descent Part 2. We're not going to leave you hanging. We're not that show. <laughs> no. We're not going to leave you hanging. You might get to the end and say, wait, what? What's happening? No. We want you to know the full story. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> if we have to, so do you. There is a whole big full story. Man, there's a full recap. There's tons of trivia. All kinds of stuff coming up. But first, a word from Eagle Moss and the official Star Trek Starships collection. Uh, John, have you heard? It's sort of warm outside. People are hitting the beaches. It's a summer of track. That's right. So marking the launch of the 100th vessel. They've hit 100 already. A 100th vessel in the official Star Trek Starships collection. Eagle Moss invites fans across the generations to get your trek on. That's what they want you to do. Get your trek on in the summer of trek sweepstakes. Do you remember the 100th vessel? Your generations. That was very cute. Yeah. yeah. See, see what they did there? All the generations, yeah, right? Indeed. Yeah. Uh, the 100th vessel, that is um, no. Okay. The Horizon, which kind of you said looks a little bit like the Discovery. Oh, right, and right, right. I, I reminded you and our listeners like, hey, that was one of Matt Jeffrey's original designs for the Enterprise that then got turned into a Canon ship. Kind of kind of cool. I love that that celebrates the 100th vessel that they make. And so what they're doing to celebrate that is saying to people, hey, look, you know about the graphic novels, and you can buy those if you want to. You know about the tiny little starships, and you can buy those if you want to. You know about some of the bigger starships you make, or that we make, excuse me, and you can buy those too if you want to. Or you can just sign up and we'll give you stuff. Now, I mean, it is a sweepstakes, so it's not like... You know, you can sign up and you automatically get something. But man alive, do they have a ton of prizes available to people. Yeah, it's not an exaggeration to say hundreds of prizes, hundreds of them. Everything from gift cards to graphic novels, uh, digital comic books are going to give you a download. Um, and then prize packs of those teeny tiny starships can that you and I like so much. So it's the summer of Trek and grand prize winners will get full one-year subscriptions to the Starships collection. 
I mean, we, you and I are gaga over these ships, yeah. so I can imagine that these grand prize winners will be very happy, too. Other winners will get selections of those models. And like I said, the graphic novels, collections, digital comic books, there's just so much more. How might people sign up? <laughs> well, they can do that by getting their track on, and they can do that at Get Your Track on.com slash mission log. I kind of want to spell all that, but I kind of don't. <laughs> Get your track on.com slash mission log. And um, yeah, I mean, what's really interesting, you go there too and you just get a, you get an idea. First of all, the prizes you could win, but you also get sort of different looks at a lot of the really fun stuff that they have to, uh, that they have to offer. Uh, please, John, even though I did it mere moments ago, remind everyone how they can enter. Don't forget, it's getyourtrekon.com slash mission log. And we do thank Eagle Moss again for sponsoring this episode of Mission Log. Now, we said it's two episodes coming up, which means tons of trivia coming up. But before we get to that, I do want to remind you how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Now, John, um, we are heading out of season six. We're heading mm -hmm. into season seven. I don't mm -hmm. even know if we knew at the time that this was the last transition like that we were going to have. I want to say it was during season seven that we found out there would be no season eight. We're going to the movies after this. Mm -hmm. Whether that's the case or not, though, cliffhangers and then season openers are always big deals. I'm guessing there's at least a tiny bit of trivia. There's a little bit. Now, you said that there's going to be a ton of trivia. I actually, this is going to be a big show. I tried to really narrow down the trivia a bit. But you know what? It's interesting that you said that sometimes you have a cliffhanger. You don't know if you're coming back. You know who didn't know if they were coming back? Uh, that would be Gates McFadden and uh, Marina Sirtis because they had not yet signed on for the next season when they were shooting the last episode of season six. Really? <laughs> so, yeah, so it was kind of interesting. There was one version of the script where they would have been separated, um, and which they, they are because you, you've got um, you've got uh, Dr. Crusher on the Enterprise, you've got Diana Troy on the planet, and you kind of write in a way that you get them out of the picture, and you could have actually lost one of those characters if you had to, if they needed to do that. But here's here's one of the reasons that we would have had them really separated okay part one written by ronald d moore story by jerry taylor why do they call it descent well so it might have had something to do with data's madness mm -hmm. but it's also because one draft of the episode had the enterprise crash landing so you could have had all kinds of chaos and havoc and like i said if you weren't going to have a character come back well you you write in ways to not have a character come back so there you are Part one was also directed by Alexander Singer. Now, part two was written by Rene Echeverria and directed by Alexander Singer. This is kind of an oddity where you have the same director doing both parts, but of course they had that summer hiatus to develop the second part. 
Now, the first time we saw Alexander Singer's work on TNG was Relics, and the most recent time was Ship in a Bottle. He's just got one more coming up with Next Gen, but then he works on the subsequent spinoff series. And you might remember uh, this bit of trivia that he had worked on Mission Impossible back in the 60s, and that's where he first met Gene Roddenberry, and he had hoped to work on Star Trek way back in the TOS days. Now, there's another bit of an oddity that's worth pointing out here, that uh, Part 1's opening credits are in the teaser, not in Act 1 as usual, probably because there is so much action. It'd be a little bit hard to read the credits when you're in the middle of a Borg firefight. So this is the one episode where they planted those credits at the very beginning of the show instead of after the opening credits. Now, Ken, you know that I love ship names, and we've got a lot to play with here. We have uh, the Crazy Horse, which is named, of course, after the iconic Sioux leader. Uh, we have the Agamemnon, named after the mythical king of Mycenae. And, uh, you know, he kicked off a little war all over a woman named Helen. We had the Shuttle Elbaz, and we've seen that one before, named after the scientist uh, Farouk Elbaz. And, oh, and we have an in-universe ship name that I really like, the Gorkon. And, of course, that's named after the assassinated Klingon Chancellor from Star Trek VI. Speaking of Star Trek VI, here's a cool bit of location trivia. So the building where Lore has set up shop is actually the Brandeis Barton Institute in Simi Valley, California. And it was used before as Camp Kittimer in Star Trek VI, but it was dressed very differently, and the matte painting for the exterior changed quite a bit, so they, they kind of hit it a little bit. And we also have a return to uh, a much older location, so a hillside used in this side of Paradise. Mm. It's one of the exterior shots that they have. And, and yes, you know, this side of Paradise is an episode that we still, to this day, get email about. I was going to say, I was wondering why some of those exterior shots gave me an uneasy feeling. Mm-hmm. That would be why. That's exactly <laughs> itching why. for a fight. They like they took a shot of the hillside, yep. and I was like, "Man, I'm going to punch somebody." Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now we got a lot of guest stars. So we're just going to hit the highlights here. Of course, we have the real Stephen Hawking as himself. Um, although maybe you could argue he's not playing himself; he's playing the holodeck version of Stephen Hawking. If you want to get technical, but really, it's the the only Star Trek guest star to be playing himself, which is kind of a a neat thing to be. And there is this very famous story about him getting a tour of the set of the Enterprise. And uh, he goes into engineering and they kind of take him up, show him the warp core. And then he says through his computer, I'm working on that. (laughs) It's pretty great, right? Nice. We have Jim Norton back as Albert Einstein. And yes, I say we have him back because we saw him one time before as the same character in the nth degree. Uh, he was, of course, interacting with Barclay in that episode. Now, British-born John Neville plays Sir Isaac Newton. And uh, he was, you know, one of the guys pulling the strings in the X-Files, if you watched that series. And he was the Baron himself in The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. We lost John in 2011. Brian J. Cousins, we mentioned way back in Season five's The Next Phase, in which he played the Romulan Param. Now he is back as the Borg Croesus. He'll be back for one more Trek appearance in Enterprise. Back from Chain of Command, we have the tough-as-nails Admiral Necheyev, played once again by Natalia Nagulich, and we will see more of her in upcoming TNG and Deep Space Nine. 
And back from iBorg, of course, we have Jonathan Delarco as Hugh, this being his second and final appearance on Next Gen, but he will be back as a different character for a guest role on Voyager, and he lends his voice talent to a couple of Trek video games. And we have a couple of new faces on the bridge when Dr. Crusher is in command. We have Tate and Barnaby. And in an early draft of the script, it would have been Barclay instead of Tate. Uh, That character is played here by Alex Datcher. She's from Chicago. She got her start on the TV version of Beauty and the Beast, and this is her only Trek appearance. And Barnaby is played by James Horan. And what's cool is that we just talked about James Horan. He was Jobril in Suspicions. And we mentioned that he will be back in a lot of various guises in upcoming series. They did not waste any time getting him back. Well, I mean, there was so much makeup. I I, I will say I kept looking at him thinking, I, I should know who that is. Right. And then I realized... I thought he was the really bad guy from Thelma and Louise, and I knew that wasn't mm-hmm. right. And then I thought, mm-hmm. hey, that's Tony Goldwyn. No, he's too old to be Tony <laughs> Goldwyn, but no, it's Jabril. <laughs> so good to see him again for the first time. <laughs> there there you have it. And, and showing just amazing versatility. Uh, the part of Data's psychotic brother lore is played here by Scott Frakes. Uh, this is Scott's second time on Next Gen, having played Thomas Riker in the episode second chances. Scott Frakes is like the rich little of the Star Trek universe. Prologue. A guy in an Einstein mask, a well-manicured Isaac Newton, and the actual Stephen Hawking and Data are playing poker. No reason. Data just wanted to see what would happen. The game's interrupted by a red alert, pulling Data out of the holodeck. The Enterprise has received a distress call from Oniaka 3. An outpost there is under attack, though no one knows by whom. When the Enterprise arrives, the ship they see is like nothing they've ever seen before. It's not responding to hails, but it's not attacking either. When Riker, Data, and Worf beam down, they see dead people and one very living Borg. Act 1. Where there's one Borg, there are several more. These Borg are unusual, though. Like the pine trees lining the winding road, they have names. Unlike the pine trees lining the winding road, they also have weapons. Soon the Enterprise crew members are in a firefight with the Borg, dropping them like bad habits. It's when one falls that we learn the name and individuality thing. You have killed Torsus, says one. I will make you suffer for this. The fight continues, and Data kills a Borg with his bare hands. And this is where things get really weird. Data goes from defensive to, well, he's killing with what seems to be emotion. Anger and frustration give way to something else, as the dead Borg lays before him. Two other things are happening at the same time. In orbit, that weird ship has started attacking the Enterprise. In the outpost, one Borg is identifying the Federation crew by race. Human, Klingon, human. When it gets to Data, though, it not only identifies him as an artificial life form but as a Starfleet officer, then by name, Data. With that, the remaining Borg beam out, and the ship above breaks off its attack. The Enterprise follows, but the strange Borg ship, nothing like the standard Borg cube, simply disappears. Back at the outpost, Data tells Riker and Worf what happened. He got angry. Act 2. Concerned about his outburst, Data has asked to be relieved of duty. Riker reports of the changes in the Borg to Picard. They fought fast, viciously. They fought as individuals. 
and they had names. The officers wonder whether the last Borg with the name Hugh could have had something to do with this. Right. Time for people to do stuff. Worf, seriously, security's a big deal right now, okay? Riker, try to figure out how the Borg are just sort of disappearing along their travels. And Picard will put in a call to Starfleet Command. Meanwhile, Geordi and Data are taking a look inside Data's head. Everything there seems to be working just fine. Data figures what happened is he's evolved to points of feelings. Whoa, 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 feelings. Jordy's like, how would you know what a feeling feels like? And Data's like, can you describe it? And Jordy's like, I don't know, I just feel it. And Data's like, yeah, me too. Well, says Jordy, I hope you had something better than anger at some point. Picard's call to Starfleet has been answered. Admiral Necheyev will take command of this sector of space in case of a Borg invasion. While she's here, though, she'll also yell at Picard. Hey, remember that time you could have killed the Borg by delivering a virus by way of you? Why didn't you do that? Picard tells Necheyev what she already knows, that once broken from the collective, Hugh became a person. Picard had no choice but to respect his rights as an individual. I am bound by my oath and my conscience to uphold certain principles, says Picard, though the Admiral disagrees. Your priority is to safeguard the lives of Federation citizens, not to wrestle with your conscience. Necheyev out. Speaking of wrestling with conscience, Data and Troy are talking over Data's feelings. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Actually, they're talking over his feeling. All he's felt so far is anger, no matter what he does to try to excite other emotions. He's worried that this negative emotion, anger, is the only one he's got. Troy says there are no negative emotions. It's what we do with emotions that's good or bad. Still, Data worries that anger alone will make him a bad person, if he ever gets to be a person, because he did have this one other feeling about which he's told no one. When he killed the Borg, he felt pleasure. Act 3. This sector of space is jumpy. Colonies keep thinking they're being attacked, even though they're not. Picard is also tense. He's upset that they can't figure out how the Borg are traveling from place to place without actually going from place to place. Of course, what really has him upset is Hugh. Picard could have ended the Borg threat with Hugh. Riker says sending Hugh back was the moral thing to do. But, says Picard, in this case, the moral thing may not have been the right thing. Meanwhile, on the holodeck, Data is killing a Borg with his bare hands. Repeatedly. He's trying to feel anger again. But the problem may be the safety. On the outpost, he was in danger. In the holodeck, he's not. He asked Jordy to remove the mortality failsafe. Jordy doesn't like the idea, though he is saved by the bell. Or the klaxon. Red alert is called again. This time, a colony actually is being attacked. Data has put himself back in the game. Emotional outbursts have not been a problem since Oniaka 3. The Enterprise heads to MS-1, the colony under attack. Picard wonders, almost in passing, why the Enterprise is always the closest ship when the Borg attack. When they arrive, the weird Borg ship is once again taking off. It opens its usual subspace distortion, and this time, the Enterprise accidentally follows. Act 4. It's a rough ride through subspace. When they re-emerge, the Enterprise has no idea where it is. There's no time to figure it out, though. The weird Borg ship has turned and started to fire. Suddenly, there are two Borgs standing on the bridge of the Enterprise. They're quickly disabled, but they were just a distraction. The Borg ship has gotten away. 
In a new move for the Borg, they did not dematerialize their dead. Good news, though. One of the Borg is still alive. Crusher is treating the injured Borg. She doesn't want to wake him, but Picard orders her to do so. The Borg is not a member of the Collective. He is Croesus. His name was given to him by The One. You know, the one who will destroy Picard and those like him. The Borg no longer assimilate inferior biological organisms. They destroy them. Not amused with hearing how he'll die, Picard orders the autopsy of the dead Borg, and he orders Data to scan the living Borg to make sure he's not sending messages back to the others. While Data is analyzing Croesus, Croesus is getting in Data's head. He says he used to be like Data, unable to feel. His words seem to be getting to Data, though the flashing green thing on Croesus' arm may be helping as well. And once again, Data is showing signs of emotion. He likes feelings. He'd like to feel more of them. He even says he would be willing to kill his best friend, Geordi, to make that happen. On the bridge, Warp says an unauthorized shuttle is leaving the Enterprise. On it are Croesus, the Borg prisoner, and Data. A transwarp conduit opens ahead of the shuttle, and it's gone. Act 5. Luckily, Geordi has figured out the whole transwarp thing. The Enterprise is able to follow the shuttle, though they do not know whether Data is a prisoner or an accomplice. Wherever they are, the Borg have been busy. There are signs of civilization, but no life readings. The Enterprise is able to track the planet Data's ship went to, though interference makes it impossible to know whether there are more Borg waiting on the surface. An away team beams down and finds no trouble, clearing the way for more away teams. Almost everyone will join in the search. Even Picard. That will leave Dr. Crusher in command of the Enterprise. Her orders are explicit. If the Borg attack, you do not try to rescue the away teams. Just get back to Federation space. Search parties are formed on the planet. Just for fun, we'll follow the one with Picard, Geordi, and Troy, and some poor dumb loser with a rifle and a gold shirt. They find a structure. And isn't it lucky that they were the ones we decided to follow? Inside the building, they find a sort of ceremonial chamber. Suddenly, the chamber is filled with angry Borg and with Data's evil brother, Lore. He's got a suddenly evil-seeming Data with him, and they have a plan. The Sons of Soong will destroy the Federation. Prologue for Descent Part 2 Lore is proud of what the Borg have become. He's given them something to believe in. He didn't make them individuals, though. The Enterprise did that. Hugh's sense of self was transferred to the Borg on his ship. That sort of wiped out their whole hive mind thing. They could no longer function as a cohesive unit. That's when Lore found them. He gave them a strong leader to follow and a perfection to which they could aspire. The reign of biological life forms is coming to an end. You, Picard, and those like you, are obsolete. While Data has chimed in a bit, most of the proclamation came from Lore. He's not interested in having Picard and Data speak. Act 1. In orbit, the Enterprise is being pursued by the weird Borg ship. Crusher and her skeleton crew beam as many people off the surface as possible before having to raise shields. They got all but 47. Huh. Unable to damage the weird Borg ship, the Enterprise heads to the transwarp conduit, but the Borg don't follow. 
On the surface, Riker and Worf tell the other crew members to hunker down and stay safe. Could be a while before anyone comes for them. In the structure, Data is leading Picard, Geordi, and Troy to a cell. Picard tries to impress upon Data how immoral Laura's plans and actions are, but Data says Picard doesn't understand, and that he's no longer the captain's puppet. Act 2. Crusher has decided, surprise, surprise, to disobey direct orders. She sends a buoy through the conduit back to Federation space, then makes plans to go back for the Enterprise crew. But how can they do that without the Borg knowing? Lieutenant Barnaby has a risky idea. They should warp back to the planet, drop out of warp close to the planet, but on the opposite side of the planet from the Borg ship. That should give them enough time to beam up the crew. On the planet, Riker and Worf are looking for the structure Picard found. Inside that structure, Lore plans to experiment on Picard, Troy, and Geordi, starting with Geordi. Data doesn't like the sound of that, until Lore explains that experimenting on the humans will save more Borg. Why is Data going along with all this? Well, in their cell, Geordi tells Picard and Troy that Lore is transmitting some sort of carrier wave at Data. He figures Lore is sending Data negative emotions, and that he's overridden Data's ethical programming. But, if they can create a Cadian Pulse, that should reboot Data's subsystems, kicking his ethical programming back online. So how do you do that from a jail cell? Outside, bad news. Riker and Worf are captured by Borg. Good news, though. They're not Lore's Borg. It's their old pal, Hugh, who is not happy to see them. Bad news? Act 3. Hugh basically tells the same story Lore told. But Lore's not the good guy in this telling. He promised clarity and purpose, says Hugh. He seemed like a savior. Soon, though, it was obvious, at least to some, that Lore had no idea how to deliver on all the promises he made to everybody. Trying to eliminate all biological traces led to some seriously messed up Borg. So yeah, Hugh blames the crew of the Enterprise. They left the Borg ripe for takeover by someone like Lore. Hugh asks about Geordi, and is moved to hear that he's been captured. Still, Hugh says he can't help. He can't risk he and his Borg being discovered. But he can tell Riker and Worf how to get into Lore's compound. In the compound, Data is playing cruel jokes on Geordi. He's also fitting him with nanocortical fibers that will hopefully replicate Geordi's brain functions. Then he'll scramble Geordi's brain. The whole time, Geordi tells Data that he's being controlled by Lore though Data does not acknowledge that. Meanwhile, Troy and Picard lure a Borg guard into their cell. Their escape attempt doesn't work, but that was a Hail Mary anyway. The real plan was to get an electronic what's-it off the guard and generate the Cadion Pulse to reboot Data's subsystems. Mission accomplished, Geordi begins talking Picard through the necessary modifications. On the Enterprise, remember Crusher's plan to pick up the rest of the crew? She's done it! Only Riker, Worf, Picard, Troy, and Geordi are left behind. Well, them, plus the gold shirt guy who bought it in Descent Part 1, and Data. But the weird Borg ship is back, and it's firing on the Enterprise. Warp capabilities are knocked out, and so Beverly sets course for, wait for it, the nearest star. Act 4. Beverly asks Lieutenant Barnaby if he's ever heard of anything called metaphasic shielding. He says, Jordy's been working on a metaphysics shielding program. She tells him to call that up and turn it on. If it works, they'll be able to hide in the star's corona where the Borg can't go. Good news, it does work. Bad news, 
The Borg just sort of hang out near the sun, waiting for the Enterprise to exit. In their cell, Picard has finished work on the Cadion pulse emitter. He's pushed it into the cell's force field in the hopes that that'll power the emitter and reboot Data's subsystems. In the lab, Data is about to fry Geordi's brain. So Geordi has a bit of warning. If you do this and it doesn't work and you eventually stop being evil, you may seriously regret what you're about to do. This gives Data pause. He postpones the procedure. Maybe the Cadion Pulse did its trick? Data goes to talk to Lore. He's having doubts. Lore's not interested in Data's doubts, though. He's interested in control. With the push of a button, he manipulates Data's emotions, pulling back Data's feelings. As if going through withdrawal, Data begs to have his feelings back. He needs them. Lore returns them saying he hopes this clarifies things for Data. With his brother gone, Lore tells Croesus that he's having doubts, too, about Data. I do not believe he wants to be part of our great future. Act 5. It is getting hot on the Enterprise. Ensign Tate has an idea. She wants to create a solar flare and aim it at the Borg ship. It's risky, but if it works, the Borg ship will be destroyed. Good news! It works! The Borg ship is destroyed. The Enterprise heads back towards the planet. Back on the planet, Data is back at the cell holding his crewmates. Picard says another session will kill Geordi, but Data says he's not there for Geordi. He's there for Picard. As they walk, Picard talks to Data about good and bad, and about how bad all of this is. They're interrupted by Lore and the Borg. Lore has a job for Data. To prove his loyalty to the cause... He wants Data to kill Picard. Data won't do it. He says, it would be wrong. A disappointed Lord turns the ceremony from a show of loyalty to a show of strength. He has asked for sacrifices from his Borg, though he's prepared to make sacrifices just as great, including sacrificing his own brother. Lore aims a disruptor at Data, though he's stopped by Hugh. Though Hugh had said he couldn't help, he has snuck in and joined the fight. Actually, he started the fight, and it is a huge fight. Worf and Riker have infiltrated. They're shooting Borg. Borg are beating up other Borg, and Lore is quietly slipping away, though he's followed by Data. Lore has a plan. Leave. But hey, Data, want to come with? We could start over. I'll even give you the chip our father made for you that I, you know, killed him for. It's a ruse, though. He manipulates Data's emotions again, causing him to swoon. When Data falters, Lore bears down with the disruptor, but Data's got a disruptor of his own, and before Lore can fire, Data does, disabling his evil twin. He then deactivates Lore and tells Picard that Lore should be disassembled so he'll never be a threat ever again, and please, nobody tell Bruce Maddox about this. Also, Data's fine, apparently. The Enterprise crew tells Hugh goodbye. He's not sure what they're going to do now. He worries that they have no leader, though Picard says he's not sure that that is the case. Back on the Enterprise, Geordi's recovering. He catches Data about to destroy the emotion chip salvaged from Lore. Data thinks emotions are bad news, and he never wants anything like what happened to Geordi to happen because of him again. But having emotions is Data's dream. Geordi says he'd be a bad friend to let Data give up on his dream so easily. He'll hold on to the chip. Maybe Data will be ready for it someday. 
the end. Ooh, you think? You think he'll be ready for it one day? Do I think he'll be ready for it one day? I don't know. Just yeah. Yeah, but tell me, please. <laughs> tell me, please. We're finally done with lore. Look, look. Mm-hmm. Scott did an awesome job in this episode. Don't get me wrong. You know who else did an awesome job in Enough this? Enough with the lore already. I'm just saying. Who else did an awesome job? Sorry. Uh, Lieutenant Junior J. <laughs> Lieutenant Junior J. Uh-huh. She was in there for like a second. Yeah. When yep. uh, she, So she apparently was down on the planet. Because then when they beamed everybody back up on the planet and introduced us to Lieutenant Barnaby for the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then uh, Tate, who I didn't make much mention of in the recap, because there was, there was just far too much in this recap. Yeah, there's a lot of recap. There's a lot going on in these two episodes. And honestly, right. the first time I watched it, I thought, man, there's really not a lot happening. And then I sat down to write it. And I'm like, oh, we can cut that. We can cut that. And I think that still sells it. <laughs> well, w- one thing that I'm glad you didn't cut Hmm. You have the opening poker game, totally inconsequential. Yeah. It, it just, it feels like one of those where we did it because we could. Yeah. But it's so great. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's so awesome. It really is. If, if you have a chance to get Stephen Hawking, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you put him in there. Yeah. And I love the fact that he's enough of a nerd that he's like, yeah, I'll do it. Um, I like that they make a point of uh, Data taking himself off duty. But don't worry, because he's back literally in minutes, and really that little plot detail means nothing, ultimately, um, at all. It's like, yeah, Data's not on duty, which basically means he's not in this scene right now in the conference room, but we'll literally cut to him, and he's still in uniform, and he'll be back. Um, Well, I mean, it's important for, like, you know, moving the story along. If he had been, if he'd like, you know, killed the Borg and felt good about killing the Borg, and then he's like, Mm -hmm. and I'm fine to go, you know, to go to work, then he's not taking it very seriously at all, is he? Well, no, I mean, you could have definitely, you have to have those scenes with him talking to Troy. That is a great chilling scene. I love that. You have to have the scenes of him talking to Jordy, but, you know, just to say like, oh, he's off duty. But then like every other scene after that has got him in it. It's like, oh, what, he's here, but he's not. Shouldn't he be in his room painting and talking to Spot, doing something else? I don't know. But um, if he's in control of his emotions otherwise, Mm -hmm. he should just contribute to the discussion. Like he is helpful particularly when you're dealing with things about the Borg. I mean, even over FaceTime, he could be in another part of the ship and he could just be like, yeah, look, guys, I'm not feeling well, but here's the thing. I know a lot about this stuff. You know? mm. Does he need to rest? Because he, he's the guy who starts his shift at 11 p.m. Well, okay. So let's say the warp core is performing fine, except there's like a little knock. Mm-hmm. The warp core can, like, destroy the ship <laughs> yes, it can. if there's anything yes. wrong. So you go ahead and you take the warp core offline, even if it was just, like, a little knock. Even if most yeah. people didn't even hear it, they'd go ahead and do that. So that's kind of Data, right? Because hmm. remember, one of the other times that Data malfunctioned, he locked all control out of the Enterprise, stole it, and, you know, went somewhere that they didn't even know where they were going. Just, just one of the many, many times that Data malfunctions and puts everybody at risk. But this time he took, at least he took himself out of the equation this time. Now, granted, he's still walking around with the, with the strength of like 100 Klingons. Yep. So, I mean, he could still just be like a total danger to himself and everybody else. But, you know, at least he's not barking orders at the same time. I just think maybe he should have put on some civilian clothing at some point. Just really drive home that he is not on duty. Well, he had that he had that black ensemble. They, uh, no, no, I'm sorry. That was uh, that was lore. My bad. Yep. Yeah, that was lore. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, I love uh, Jordy's line. Could you, uh, I'm sorry, Data's line. Could you describe feeling angry without referring to other feelings? Because <laughs> it was such a great line. I, I felt like, you know, when I was in uh, fifth grade or something, and you just, you're trying to describe a word that you learned in the dictionary, but then you're using that word to try to describe that word. It was just, you know, it put me right back there in that yeah. moment. Um, now, Data, for being unemotional, he seems emotional about having felt emotion at killing the Borg drone. Yeah. Well, you know. Yeah. Okay. Please. Just throwing it out there. <laughs> Just throwing it out there. Well, that's we always do that though with him, don't yeah. we? Yeah. We do. We, oh. we we tease, we kid because we love. I regret that I will never be human. Well, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> either no you don't or you're human. So, you know, yeah. whatever. <laughs> right, right. And by the way, Jordy totally walked in on Data in the holodeck. I know. So uncool. Yeah. It was a little bit of a violation. Especially because I think, well, we hadn't, he had already had the discussion with Troy, actually, mm-hmm, where he's like, mm-hmm. yeah, I tried, I tried to find stuff that would make me laugh. I tried finding stuff that would turn me on. And I'm mm-hmm. guessing he did all of that in the holodeck. Jordy's just lucky that all he walked in on was his friend killing somebody with their bare hands. <laughs> That's all. Because he could have walked in on two young women, you know, formally playing the lute. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, That's a good thing. And and, and we know that Data is capable because, you know, all you need to do is give him a little space virus and he's he's good to go. (laughs) He is fully functional. Yes, we all know he's fully functional. He is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, In that holodeck simulation, Data seems confused. That he's not getting emotional by killing the holoborg. It's confusion, we just, emotion. We just I'm said sorry. We weren't going to do sorry, that. Anymore. Sorry, I did it again. I know. I did it again. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's fine. I only expect that three or five more times. Yeah. In, in this episode, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that after that poor yellow shirt, uh, Franklin gets killed on the bridge by a Borg. You know, he had the three that beam on board uh, right yeah, there. Yeah, two. Two, two. two. That, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I like the new guy who just peeks out from behind the wall with his phaser. He's like, uh, okay, you guys got this under control because I'm, I'm ready. I'm here if you need me. Is he the one who ended up going down with him and, and getting shot anyway? Oh, you know, no, I think it was a different guy. I think it was a different okay. guy. I really yeah, do. Okay. He may be the smartest of the cannon fodder then. The fact that he avoided mm-hmm. getting shot like a few times. Yeah. Yeah, he's good. It's like uh, that guy one day, they're like, wow, you're... 89 years old and you survived all these tours of duty even as a security guard man you're you're the best at this job yes i am (laughs) yes so i i will tell you um there was one thing and there is one thing about this episode that i've always hated okay and and i actually have a bit more appreciation for it now okay what was the worst line in star trek so far up to this episode is it all the times that they said spock's brain in, um, I can't remember, Booby Trap, I think was the episode where they kept saying Spock's brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it was, yeah, I think it was when they said Booby Trap in Spock's brain. <laughs> it might have, oh, it or, might have been when they kept saying Booby Trap in Spock's brain. That's yeah, possible too. Might be. Um, or like, you know, Pain mm-hmm. uh, with the one with the Horda that I can't think of the name of, Devil in the Dark. I, that's, that's actually great. I, I, I think that line yeah, is pretty but great. People make fun of the way they do that. Do you have a worst line to this point up to the uh, end of season six mm. of Next Gen? Do you have a worst line? Oh, um, uh, I'm in Starfleet. We don't lie. 
Oh, that's a good one. I forget about that one. That's a pretty great one. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a runner-up, though. Um, I remember the first time I watched this episode. The Uh first time I watched this episode. Yeah. And and Riker, not Riker, I'm sorry, uh, Picard and Jordy and Troy and that, you know, poor, dumb yellow shirt. Yeah. Are out looking for any clue they can find. Looking for Anything. any clue, any clue they could find. Like maybe make like an like an O ring, maybe right. the Borg <laughs> right. might have fallen off. Right. Uh, you know, any maybe a little. Maybe he's dripping some antifreeze or whatever mm-hmm. they have coursing through their veins there. Mm-hmm. And and Troy uh, crests the hill and says, and this is actually the line, Captain. I think I found something. Yeah. And so I'm thinking, oh, maybe she found like like a trail. Maybe she found like <laughs> right. a, like, a, like a bent twig. Mm-hmm. And then Picard comes over the hill, and there's building yeah oh <laughs> now when that happened i turned to my roommate who i've told you i watched star trek over and over again in my 20s i turned to him and said that is seriously that is the worst thing anyone has ever said on this show yeah because it is seriously the worst thing anyone. and i don't even think she was being like sardonic i don't think she was being sarcastic i don't think she was being like oh hey you know genius is over here i think she was like I think it was like a line well delivered, but as you pointed out, it's like a matte painting, right? She doesn't yeah. know what she's looking at. Right. So it's like they like in the script it says, Captain, I think I found something and she doesn't necessarily know that it's a building, but then we come over the rise and it's a building. Right. <laughs> I would have loved it if Picard had come over the hill and go, What, behind the building? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really wanted him to turn to her and go, oh, really? You think you found something? Really? Are you sensing something from that building? Is that what makes you think that you found something here? Or is it the fact that um, (sighs) we've been looking for something like this building? I'm sorry. I I feel like it's been 24 years that I've been waiting to rant about that line. Wow. I'm glad you (laughs) had this moment here in front of an audience of thousands. Yeah. Um, by the way, at this point, I'm really, I'm just waiting for somebody on the Enterprise to say, seriously, have you noticed how many times the number 47 pops up around here? Like, Data, Data, you're, you have a robot brain. Just <laughs> you, surely of all people, you know that 47 is just happening all the time. Oh, you're crazy, Tate. No way. No, it's just one of those things like you just think you're hearing it all the time now. They've actually only ever said 47 on, on uh, Star Trek like twice, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's just it, you yeah. remember every time because everybody's convinced you that they say it all the time. But seriously, you look you look it up. They almost never say 47 Almost on the show. never say it. <laughs> Do you know the, the time that they didn't even have to say it in this episode? Uh, which time? In the teaser for part one, what hand... Does Stephen Hawking play? Oh, my Lord. It was four sevens, wasn't it? It was four sevens. Uh, Just stop. Just stop. (laughs) Somebody stop. There are other numbers, okay? Perfectly good numbers. There aren't many, though. That's the problem. It really, it it doesn't go much past 47. No, there's at least 12 more numbers they could use. (laughs) All right. Eh, We'll see Uh, what happens. Yeah. Um, I'm really glad that we put Dr. Crusher in command of the Enterprise in this one, uh, really since Remember Me, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, really, I kept thinking, even if you're sending on a bunch of away teams, shouldn't the captain stay on board? And mm-hmm. shouldn't you have a doctor on the ground? Yeah. maybe. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, although she could have sent Dr. Silar. 
Yeah, that's true. We can okay. actually knock that, though. I mean, I agree with you. Uh, Picard should have stayed there, but it is great to see Beverly commanding the Enterprise. It is. It I mean, is. it's great to yeah. put that character. I mean, we've talked before about how sometimes she is strong in weak situations. And I don't mean like it's a weak situation, so who cares? I mean, like, what was the episode uh, with the Ferengi, with the scientists, whatever? I don't remember <laughs> what it was called. doesn't matter. She was right. very yeah. strong in that episode. It was okay. a very weak episode, and it was sort of yes. like a weak situation to put her in. Yeah. Um, to leave her in charge of the Enterprise is great. Now... I did have to laugh when the first thing she wants to do... I'm sorry. Second thing she wants to do is fly it into the sun. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That's kind of great. <laughs> right. right. Like, yeah. I want Picard to come back and go, you know, I made fun of you after that, and I'm sorry, because it really paid off. <laughs> <laughs> Way to go. Why is my fish dead? Yeah. Right. <laughs> but tasty. Um <laughs> Uh, this is a thing that uh, I, I won't get into too much, but I just this is the right place to put it because it's so prominent in this episode. Why do the Borg have a logo? Because the Borg have a Hitler now. What's your question? They, they do. They do. And they play up that imagery quite well. But I was so... This is the first time it's really prominent. It's not the first time it's been in Star Trek, though. Oh, is it not? It's not. And I thought it was. And I had to research it to... See if it had shown up elsewhere, and apparently it has way back from the beginning. Not as prominent, but it's there. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, that's, that's a bit ludicrous. I assume yeah. this was the first time, because you're right, it's very prominent in this. And I saw it, and I'm like, oh, well, that you know, kind of makes sense, because now they're going to be a scourge rolling right. you know, all over right. the galaxy. And who knows? Maybe one day the universe will see. Right, right. But if you're telling me it's been there before, then that just makes, that makes no sense at all. Like, the mm-hmm. collective was like, you know... Yeah, everything will be added to our everything will be added to our, you know, matrixy whatever thing. And also, we get a boss logo. We should like make it huge on the side of the cube, shouldn't right. we? Huge. Yeah. Branding guys, that's what we're missing. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Cuz people are afraid of us now, but if we had a boss logo, I think they'd be like, eh, yeah, okay. We'll, we'll try them out for a while." <laughs> uh, I actually had a question. Uh-huh. Did Lord did Lord name all of the Borg? Oh. Hmm. Yeah. So, because Croesus is like, my name's Croesus. You know who named me that? Lore. Uh-huh. And then Lore knew that other Borg's name, um, Clovis. I can't yeah, remember right. his name. Yeah, it and, wasn't Clovis. Uh, it's it's not Clovis. TJ. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I was wondering after a while. I was like, ah, yes, you shall be Conticulus, and you shall be. What were you again? Jonida or whatever <laughs> it is. You know. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, yeah. and then after a while, right? It's like yeah, Eddie, Steve. Yep. Other Steve. Wilbur. Um, yeah. yeah, still other Steve. I, yeah. <laughs> so let's just go back to numbers. All right, let's right. We'll go back to numbers because I'm running out of names. Here's a baby book. Just pick. Yeah. Just pick. <laughs> and just, you know, write it like right there under your logo and uh, and I'll, uh, I'll get mm-hmm. to know him soon. I have to say that I, I really appreciate the scenes with Tate and Barnaby. Um, mm-hmm. I, I actually do. I also think there is a lot of Star Trek just overall in all of Star Trek that could be cut out, like literally hours of programming. If you eliminated every scene that played out like this, where it's, you know, the one says, uh, Captain, I think we should do my thing. And the captain says, good, do it. But then the other person says, but Captain, if you do that thing, it might be the wrong thing. And the captain says, it might, but it might be our only chance. And then, uh, Captain, I know my thing is the right thing, though. Okay, I trust your thing is right, even if the other person doesn't. So please be right. End of scene. Into a star's corona. Into a star's corona. Into a star. R. 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 Woo. 
So, Ken, thank you again for doing that uh, that long task of pulling together the the recap for the show. What I like about see what I like about our show is that you know you dig into the story, so we get to refresh our memories about the story, and then we get to spend the next segment just sort of unwinding a little bit, just like, hey, here's what we found fun or funny or silly or just, you know, a a point to ponder. And then we get to come to this section. I'm just going to keep it light and airy and entertaining a bit. Uh, Two of the big topics in this episode, uh, the mind of a sociopath and cult mentality. Hey, just fun (laughs) all around. Yeah. Who is a sociopath? (laughs) (laughs) Well, so we'll start at the top. Okay. Um, This is... Man, this is heavy even for a show which has already dared to deal with other difficult topics. And, and I mean, Star Trek in general, going mm-hmm. back to the original series and then carrying on that tradition in the next generation. And usually uh, when we talk about Star Trek being topical, we talk about that in terms of uh, of a social thing. I mean, we're going to address overpopulation. We're going to address racism. We're going to address equality. We're going to talk about these. But this is these incredibly complex, very disturbing psychological phenomena that that are just on full display in this episode. It was really kind of fascinating to watch that happen. Um, Hugh is the one who gives the most damning assessment of Lore and and basically calls him what he is, a a charlatan who preys on the weak. Mm -hmm. He's the leader who shows up when people who need help uh, uh, are promised anything and everything that they want to hear and then uses that to give himself power see also uh cults uh cults of personality etc yeah um it was really interesting to hear hugh say yeah i mean basically he said yeah he promised us everything and then it became pretty obvious pretty quick that he had no idea how he was going to deliver on those promises yeah i mean he was not our savior he was not our salvation you know right yeah yeah that was um Wow. And, and and you sort of then, just by him saying that and describing what it is that Lore took advantage of, you almost didn't need that shot of the two Borg who were hiding in the cave who, who were sort of uh, lobotomized, mm-hmm. because just by describing that, you knew how awful and how desperate these Borg were, which humanize them as characters did did what we did to to hugh we we gave them individuality gave them personality and, and it certainly for the audience helped us to identify with where they were and what they were going through i'm not 100 percent certain i agree with you because really? yeah well only because i mean they were particularly horrific i mean they were mm-hmm. really really horrific and the fact mm-hmm. that I mean, I joked earlier, you said, why do they have a logo? And I said, because they have a Hitler now. Well, they also have a Mengele. Or, or yeah. I can't remember which of the which of the horrible Nazi, terrible, horrible Nazi people uh, were the ones who were actually doing experiments on their captors. Yeah. But what I saw there was, I mean, because there are two things. First of all, Hugh says, oh, it was really terrible for us. And it's still really terrible for us. But, you know, they're walking around. They're doing their thing. It's hard for the casual viewer, I think, which, I mean, bear in mind, you and I watch it over and over and over again. And so do people who yeah. listen to this show. But first time it's on, the casual viewer may have, you know, one of the kids may have, like, you know, you know said something while that was happening. Or they may have been off in mm-hmm. the other room grabbing a beer and missed this part or whatever. 
to to really show like a different kind of horror of what they did because all he really says is yeah we were aimless we didn't know what to do and then suddenly the strong man shows up and says hey i know what to do and we're all like oh good somebody with a plan right yeah and then he's like oh but then it's obvious he you know couldn't deliver on his promises and yet there's hugh still walking around oh but look here's someone who literally can't walk around anymore and they can't communicate they can't their life is actually over. It's not just like, ah, oh, things sucked before, and then this guy said it was going to be better, and now they still suck. And it's like, oh, no, things sucked before. This guy said it would be better. Not only do they still suck, but look how much they really actually, you know, terribly stink for, for some yeah. people to the point that we can't even call them people anymore, which is really terrible because we just got to a place where we could call them people. <clears throat> but that's sort of a different yeah. thing, I suppose. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but... It, it's one of the few times that, like, I mean, usually when a show or a movie says, oh, there's horror, and then they're like, and here's the horror. I'm like, eh, that was kind of overkill. Um, but this horror, I felt like it, it really, it maybe it was just the way they did it. It was more disturbing. Sort of like when, when Pris goes nuts in Blade Runner, you know? Hmm. Would have been fine mm-hmm. to just have mm-hmm. her die. Would have been fine to yeah. just have her die, and that would have been terrible. But she flips out in a way right. that is so horrific in a movie that's full of like some pretty horrific stuff. Yeah, this to me was was sort of that. It it to me it really it drove home the horror of what of what Laura had done. Interesting. Well, and I'll also say, to me, it's sort of a tribute to Jonathan Delarco's acting, but also the writing, because we really got to know him. We really got to know Hugh in Iborg, that he absolutely sells what's going on. He's critical to the story of what happened mm-hmm. to those Borg. And it's so nice to to tie that up and, and give it weight with somebody that we are already sympathetic toward. <laughs> yeah. Um, I can't believe you know. we're just going to fly off and leave him again, though. I know. I, I know. <laughs> like oh, with all these God. things here, we're like, yeah, we've been starving. We didn't really know what to do. Yeah. And then this guy came, and that was terrible. Yeah. But now I guess we're better. So, oh, what are we going to do now? Gee, I, I had kind of hoped maybe the Federation might have. No. Okay. Well, then I guess we'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, we got a we got a transwarp thing to catch. It's just <laughs> you know, yeah. We'd love to stay and help, but we're not going to. I like what this. <laughs> I like what this episode does as a look at emotions in general. Deanna says something very smart about embracing anger, not just good emotions. She also says something very smart about how emotions themselves aren't good or bad, but our actions are. It's very on the nose. It's very bonk bonk on the head. But it it, it was cool to plant that there because obviously there's a payoff later with data and what he's going through um but speaking of emotions and look i you know we we don't break the timeline here hint hint which means i'm about to break the timeline look i know that the emotion ship is coming back i know that we're going to talk about the emotion ship again when we're done with the tv version of next generation but i'm just going to plant the idea here i don't think it's a thing it's I know it's a thing, and I know we saw it under Laura's fingernail, and I know it's a thing that Jordy saved from Laura, and I know it's a thing that we're going to see again. Mm-hmm. I just don't think it's a thing. Because as you and I pointed out before, and this is the fifth or hundredth time that we've pointed out, that we feel like Data has emotions, that mm-hmm. they're built in. He's just not aware of them. He's not able to access them or control them or, or really experience them fully and embrace them um 
it seems like even by introducing the idea that this wave would make him behave emotionally, he doesn't actually need a chip to do that. That wave is just sort of tapping into what he's got. And that wave isn't making him, it's not like he's a puppet carrying out commands like now you will laugh now you will smirk now you will do this it's just a way of making him behave in this way so does he really need the emotion chip to do that well clearly not because it's just sort of accessing a bit of programming that he's got um that's not the impression that i got no i mean well i mean what's what's weird is when you say you don't think the emotion chip is a thing then i get a little confused because i mean unless we have to have the there is no data there is no enterprise discussion no no i i know i know i know but but it seems that the the emotion chip isn't something that is necessary for data to act on emotionally there are other things that act on his system that make him act emotionally whether it's a virus that he picked up in the naked now not to be confused with the naked time um or whether it's Q making him laugh at a joke mm. or making uh, or, or a wave, like I said, that just plays on what he's already got to make him angry or the confusion that data expresses about having behaved angrily. Well, I mean, the, see, that's the problem in the confusion, because we have that all the time, too. Like when he acts genuinely mm-hmm. surprised that the pot boiled at the end of Timescape. I mean, yep. He did seem surprised when that happened and is surprised in emotion or or is what he demonstrated there in emotion. I mean, Jordy can actually see the thing that um, Lore is broadcasting at data. And by the way, way to bury the lead. (laughs) Wouldn't you think he would have mentioned that like as soon as they were out of earshot? They're all like sitting there. They're already all beleaguered. and, and, And Jordy's like, yeah, he probably took my visor because I could see the thing he was doing to data. But right. uh, what? Yeah. he can see the thing that he's doing to data. And we also know that that thing is happening because um, Croesus, when he was on board the Enterprise, he hit that little green thing on his arm. And then suddenly data starts acting all hinky again. I mean, Lore, Lore is a master manipulator, at least mm-hmm. where data's concerned. I mean, whether he's actually a master manipulator, I don't know, but data falls for it all the time. And so Lore is actually going to, I mean, he, he, he sends him negative vibes. He sends him negative emotions. Now it's weird that yeah. he can sort of parse those out, but I don't feel like, I feel like he was giving data access to something that data did not have access to otherwise. I, I think, I mean, I got to believe, this hmm. sounds like a crazy phrase. I got to believe Sung and I've got to believe data and I've got to believe lore in this case that that chip either is going to give him the emotions or is going to give him access to the emotions. I don't know which we haven't heard a lot mm-hmm. about data's dreaming lately. Have we? No, because apparently everybody forgot that uh, yeah. when data was right. dreaming, they was like, Oh yeah, we're done with the dreams. Yeah, yeah. Cause I would have thought that that would actually be a way to unlock emotions, but apparently the chip is the way to do it. So, yeah, see, I will, like I said, we're going to come back to the chip, but here's where we actually get to play it up again. We introduce it. Now it is in the possession of people on the Enterprise, namely Jordy, and this will come up again. But yeah, so boom, timeline broken. We'll get to it. What do you think, though, of uh, Jordy saying, yeah, no, I'm not going to let you destroy that. You've wanted this for so long, even though it didn't work out this time. I think it's maybe something. I mean, he basically gives him the don't give up on your dream speech, right? Yeah. But if if data is not emotional about his dreams, then 
would it matter to him or not? Like, like data is just going to change his mind one day. Like, oh no, I'm feel. Uh, I, I no. Yeah, this has just become like this has just become like a giant mud puddle that we roll around in from time to time. It because is. I mean, it's like, emotions are yeah, a giant mud puddle. Well, they are or a puddle of mud, mm-hmm. maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm kind of. I don't want to say I'm like bored debating it, but I kind of am because I mean, yeah, he yeah. because you're right. I mean, what would he care? Why would he feel the need to destroy the chip even? He wouldn't need to destroy the chip. In fact, he wouldn't want to destroy the chip, assuming that he would actually mm-hmm. want anything. Because that's a bit of something that Sung made, and there may be something technological to learn from it. So no way Data is going to destroy that. Right. <sighs> Everything he does says that he has emotions. But then is that is that is that the Pinocchio syndrome, or is that the... Uh, Wizard of Oz thing where what she wanted was there the whole time does he actually have emotions the whole time and he just doesn't realize it or is it just the writers can't write not having emotions and still have the character be interesting that, see that that's I'm, I'm going with Wizard of Oz and I, I always will <laughs> right. on this well, that's um, he could have sent that chip off to Bruce Maddox and said here what, what do you make <laughs> no, of this no 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 wait what you found lore <laughs> where is he oh yeah I'm, I'm sorry there's there seems to be a miscon I can't mm-hmm. we're not we're going through a ton yep. of yep yeah Sorry, Bruce. Hey, uh, let's talk about brothers because we have been. There was actually something that I found myself wondering about, and I don't think it's like a. I don't think it was an intentional thing at all, but I found it kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cybok and Lore. Mm. Lore controls by adding negative emotion. Cybok controls by taking negative emotion away. Mm. Discuss. Well, <laughs> or if there's nothing to discuss, that's fine. But I found myself like, huh. That's kind of an interesting, sort of an interesting thing. And come to think of it, Cybok was uh, was Spock's brother, and Lore is Data's brother, and Data was always sort of considered the Spock of Next Gen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, well, I think what you can make of that is that emotions are powerful things, and they're a very good way to exert influence over people, mm. whether it is by adding or by taking away. But I, I think this goes back to something about star trek's exploration of what it means to be human you know every time we're presented with an alien race you know let's take it back to the original series the vulcans are there as these people who were hyper emotional who had to get their emotions under check or else they were going to wipe themselves out and now they're this ultra pure logical race that is a little grating on humans we don't quite get it and star trek holds that up to say as humans, our emotions are valuable things. We don't want to be quite like the Vulcans. Right. But the Vulcans are good at keeping the worst of it at bay. And look how far they've progressed by keeping the worst of it at bay. But maybe they take it a little too far. Like when you have characters like, say, Spock and Sarek with their daddy issues, you know? Mm-hmm. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you have Star Trek also saying, hey, look, we can't be hyper-emotional and emotional all the time and and uh, uh, play into our worst instincts. We, we have to find, we, we have to always make sure that we as human beings are playing to the top of our intelligence and making right and rational decisions that are tempered with compassion. So any straying too far in one direction or another, too much emotion, too little emotion, is taking away something from the human experience. I, I, you know, so I, I think Lore and Cybok are both good representations of that. 
See, I thought they were just saying that brothers are evil. Oh, well, there could just be that, too. So thank you. Thank you for, yeah, for finding yeah. the, for finding the deeper meaning in that. Yeah. Um, Picard has a journey in this a bit. He, he is, or, or a challenge in this. He, he's faced with his decision to send Hugh back and the, the repercussions of that. And Riker hits a nail on the head about pretty much every Star Trek quandary that we've tackled. It, it, he may have made a moral decision, but was it the right decision? So very specifically in this case, should we respect the rights of the individual, Hugh, mm-hmm. over the concern for security? Now, Star Trek would seem to say yes, even if Admiral Necheyev would say no. Yeah. Um, and something that I love about this is that there's not there's not a super clear answer on that, even though I know we got a lot of mail from people saying, oh, in Iborg, he should have just sent Hugh back and let him destroy the other Borg. We should have planted that virus and just let it happen, that mm. Picard made a terrible decision. Um, and obviously, I, I disagree with that take on it. What I like here is that Star Trek is being bold enough to say that there are moral decisions that may not have the best outcome, but it is still the right decision to have made. Um, I really respect that, that this is something that gets followed up upon. Think about the number of times in TOS when Kirk may have made a quote unquote right decision, but then we leave that episode those people are never to be seen again. <laughs> you think, well, what would have happened if a year later somebody from Starfleet showed up? Wait a minute, wait a minute. What would have actually been the repercussions? I'm so glad that this episode actually dared to investigate that a little bit and say, you know what? There isn't a really clear answer. Okay. <laughs> yes, I mean, I'm sort of glad about yeah. that too, although I, I'm... I'm I don't like the fact that Admiral Necheyev is out there making decisions for people, honestly. And what Picard says is, I'm bound by my oath and my conscience to uphold certain principles. And she says, your priority is to safeguard the lives of Federation citizens, not to wrestle with your conscience. Yeah. Well, what was his oath? I mean, I haven't heard it, you know, Hmm. but is his oath, I'm going to protect the citizens of the Federation above all else. Because at that point, throw the prime directive out the window. That's actually, isn't that, yeah. is, is not the prime directive actually his priority? Yeah, it is prime for a reason. Yes, yeah. yes, but she doesn't seem to think so. And, and honestly, she would serve well on the Klingon High Council. Hmm. Her federation deserves to be dismantled. Now, I don't think the federation deserves to be dismantled. I think most people, or I hope anyway, that most people in the federation think more along the lines of Picard. She strikes me more as uh, somebody who's more concerned about losing their job than Mm -hmm. dealing with what is actually right and wrong. Because I guess if, you know, people die on her watch, then there's a possibility that she'll lose her admiralty or something. I don't know what that is exactly, but I found it horrific. Yeah. And I love the fact, honestly, that Picard was just like, okay, we're done, you know, and he did it. He did it and still kept his job. You know, she says the whole thing about, listen, if you have another chance to kill all the Borg at once, do it. Do I make myself clear? And he stands up, looks beyond her and says, yes, sir. Okay. Yep. All conversation is done between the two of them at that point. But she still commands him. 
and she is still she is still saying, "Listen, I know we say we stand for something, but." And that's not cool. That's just not cool at all. No, no. I got to say, there was one other thing, and I mentioned earlier that I was um, I was cutting uh, some stuff from the recap because it didn't really move the the story along. Mm-hmm. Uh, Govel. Govel was uh, was the was the Borg for people who watched it. And if you didn't watch it, I'll just sum it up really quickly. Croesus comes in. He's like, hey, this Borg keeps turning off his thing where we can all hear his thoughts and he can hear all of ours. Which is interesting because one of the things that was supposed to have been great about the Borg now is the fact that they're all individuals. And yet it turns out they're all still supposed to be they're all still supposed to be programmed to receive, let's say. Right. He disconnected himself from the sort of mini collective that uh, that um, lore has made. And and he he says the reason he did it is because he has fears and he has doubts. And Laura is very charismatic. It's actually wonderful. Well, of course you do. Nobody can blame you for that. But listen, to alleviate your fears, your doubts, I need you to stay linked to the others. And that that's the big cult part that you're talking about. I mean, yeah. I mean, there are lots of cult parts that you're talking about. But I mean, that's that is just a perfect summation, you know. Yeah, I know you're you're thinking stuff, but listen, you don't need to think. Just listen to everybody else here who's thinking. Just let let them do the thinking for you, and you just keep you know listening to what they're saying, and you keep saying the same stuff back, and then pretty soon you will not be fearful. You will have no doubts, and we'll all march that way together. <laughs> Trust data, not lore. Unless lore is nearby, in which case, do not trust data or lore. Unless data says you can. Unless lore is pretending to be data. That is too much for one t shirt. Well, John Tysus of Mission Log. I wish I could remember what your Borg name is. Eh, oh, Jovanicus? I don't know. <laughs> Something like that. Whatever. They, it, it, look, it, Laura ran out of names. You're going to run out of names. I know. Yeah, we'll just call you something, you know, uh, really interesting, like John. Uh, time to talk about the uh, messages, morals, and meanings of the episodes, Descent and Descent 2, and uh, see whether we think uh, the episode's tense test of time. I put it to you, Mr. Champion. Does this episode hold up as far as you're concerned? I'm so glad that you mentioned the thing about Data having weird dreams and birthright. Mm. And, and then we just forgot it. Yeah. <laughs> just, you know, like, here's this really amazing idea about Data. Oh, yeah, it's just the programming thing. We're, we're done. We're done. We just give a very <laughs> practical solution and then we go away. I, I feel kind of slighted the same way when it comes to Data's emotions here, mm. because in part one, we have this really intriguing idea of Data losing his mind, kind of like how in 2001. Mm-hmm. And then we give it this pragmatic solution like, oops, mind control again. Data, did you really try to kill us all again? You know, oh, well, it was just mind control again. It happens. And then, uh, interestingly enough, we revisit Hal dying with shutting off lore. I thought that was kind of an interesting way to bookend that. Hmm. So I, I kind of wanted there to be more there about that. But this is another thing. Like, oh, it's a switch. You turn it on and then you turn it off. Um, I, I actually really like these episodes. I, I like what is introduced here. I like that... I, well, I like that we're done with lore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like that we took them apart, you know? Yeah. Um, 
I also like that we added some texture to the Borg. There are millions, maybe billions of them. So who's to say that there can't be Borg affected in different ways under different circumstances? We created the circumstance with this accident with Hugh, and now we get to see how that plays out. I get the feeling that there are a lot of negative feelings about this episode. I don't mind that Lore is sort of the mustache-twirling, melodramatic bad guy in this case, in this episode. I was a little tired of him before, but so if we're going to bring him back, let's bring him back in a big way and then get rid of him in a big way. I don't mind that the Borger changed in this episode because it is a logical extension of what we saw. But most importantly, I really enjoy the psychological implications of what's going on here. Even if there aren't necessarily deeper meanings, it, it's just interesting, dark material to kind of grapple with. Mm-hmm. So I, I I went into this honestly thinking, oh, yeah, it's the one where Laura comes back and it's it's the sort of Nazi-ish imagery. And, and there's Laura standing up on the uh, on the platform addressing his subjects. And I, I was sort of not looking forward to that. But the more I rewatched it and really tuned into the dark stuff that this episode was playing with, I liked it more. And and like I said, I liked the idea that it challenged our main characters about the decisions that they had made. So I think it does hold up. I think there are problems. I think there are things you kind of have to get past. And if you're just not going to like lore here, you're just not going to like lore here. But to me, that wasn't even necessarily the biggest, you know, problem with the episode. How about you? I wish there was more from Lore. I don't mean I wish there was more Lore. I mean, I wish there was more from him. I mean, you're right. He is just the mustache-twirling villain. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, so what's the plan? He's not really interested, actually, in replacing all humans with um, artificial life forms. That becomes pretty obvious when he tells Data, yeah, eh, it's probably going to kill all the humans anyway, but whatever. Not a big deal. I mean, he's not pursuing any sort of scientific anything here. He doesn't really have any sort of agenda. He's just the bad guy. And and that part kind of bothers me because, well, I mean, it bothers me for a few reasons. Because then occasionally they try to introduce little moments of depth, like when he tells Data he loves him. Okay, well, first mm-hmm. of all, I don't know that Laura is capable of love. But second, that's not going to have any effect on Data because, hi, you stole his emotion chip. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, right. so saying I love you doesn't work and yet I don't I don't buy for a second that there's any part of lore that actually does love data. The whole thing where he turns to Croesus and says I'm worried that my that um he doesn't want to be part of our glorious future or whatever. Well, you were controlling him to be part of the glorious future, so that really shouldn't come as any surprise. It's things like that that sort of take me out of it a bit. And, of course, the worst line in Star Trek up to this point. (laughs) Those things bother me, but you're right. There was actually more to this episode than I remembered. I mean, like the whole thing about the whole thing about emotions, the whole thing about negative feelings versus I mean, whether emotions are bad or 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 is it just our reactions to them in a way? Uh, the stuff about uh, the stuff about a strong man leading people who don't really seem to know any better or care for any more is sort of an interesting thing to explore, and not something that I remembered at all from having watched it several years ago. Yeah, production-wise, it's fine. I have always loved that weird Borg ship. I kind of wish we had a better idea of how big it was. 
because mm-hmm. it's not until Beverly is like, let's get out of here. And they fly like right past it. You know, they're like, wow, that thing's like nine times bigger than the Enterprise, which kind of makes sense because it would be constructed the same way a board cube would be except they've lost their cohesion at this point. And so it's got this sort of like weird, like almost like cantilevered design that's really awesome. That's actually always been one of my favorite weird ships on yeah. uh, on Star Trek. Yeah, I mean, production-wise, yeah, it, it's all, yes. I would say, ultimately, I would say, yes, it holds up. I don't think I enjoyed it quite as much as you did. I, it's funny. I, I think one of the other worst lines in this episode mm. is the reveal uh, at the beginning of part two. Well, what are the brothers, uh, uh, you know, Soong's sons going to do? Destroy the Federation. Yes. It, it, it's that, that is the problem with the episode. The, the, the problem is not lore. The problem is the motivation rings a little hollow. why why do you need to destroy the federation really you have political aspirations now is that what this is about come on (laughs) right so uh what about messages though is this uh, a message episode well i mean yeah i think all the stuff about laura and his leadership strikes me as i mean these are cautionary tales that maybe should be viewed every now again now and again Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, because all through history, all through different societies, all through different times, all through different countries, we've had people just show up and say, I'm going to fix everything. And then, you know, a segment of the population will be like, all right. Yes. Here. Here's all of the everything. Fix it. Oh, well, it turns out I can't. But I wasn't really interested in doing that anyway. So whatever. I mean, that actually, there was a surprising bit of depth to the lore part, despite the fact that there really seems to be no depth to lore. He really is just a bad guy, and yet he does manage to um, to sway a large number of uh, a large number of beings. So I would say warning against that is is, is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. The questions about emotions, the questions about how we deal with emotions. I mean, those are kind of erased in Descent too. When, as you point out, oh, it turns out it was just a chip. Okay, this yeah. is nothing we have to worry about anymore. When Dana comes out of there and he's like, "Oh, Laura's dead." Okay. Um, how do we know that for certain? Because remember that time that Lord just like changed clothes with Data, <laughs> right. right? But right. but Data comes back and he's like, "Oh, don't worry, Captain. Uh, Lord's Lord's really dead this time. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. I promise. Prove and it. So, oh, okay. Well, well, good then. Welcome back aboard the ship. Uh, yeah. You're on eleven, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. So um, no, I mean, there's not a. There's not a save the whales. There's not a don't eat paint kind of message here. Um, but, I mean, there are different things that one can glean. Uh, hey, you're one. What did you glean, John? Oh, well, let's see. I mean, I, I agree with you. We, we don't really learn much from the experience with Lore. It's a, sort of the shortcoming of the Lore character, except that he's he's still a sociopath. Right. Um, but, but we do kind of have something from data's journey but but more so through the filter of diana that he's got to embrace the full spectrum of emotions and face his fears about them that's kind of interesting for the data character maybe something to to pick up from there um i I also found myself wondering at the end of the day does this episode rebuke picard's good intentions with hugh yeah you made the moral decision but it wasn't right or was it right um or or also don't go meddling where it's not your place also 
just look out for yourself. Uh, also, there's no good way to win this one. I mean, it's it's complex moral territory, ethical territory for Picard. Um, and he gets that dressing down from uh, Necheyev, which, yeah, there's an argument to be made for her concern. But like you said, what is this oath that Picard swore to uphold? And is that sense of conscience more important? Well, Star Trek is telling us yes. Right. You know? What is what is she defending? Yeah. I mean, yes, yeah. she is defending lives at that point. I understand that. But these are lives in the Federation. We've been given to understand that, you know, people in the Federation can choose to go someplace else. You can go outside the Federation if you want to. And in a post-scarcity economy... I mean, you really can. This isn't like, a, oh, you don't like living in the city? We'll just move out. Well, a lot of people can't. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's not yeah. just as simple as pick up and go. Uh, in the 24th century, we're given to understand that it kind of is that simple. And and the people in the Federation are probably in the Federation, I mean, maybe because they have the best replicators in all the land. That's a possibility. <laughs> right. My assumption, though, is there is some sort of moral decision that's being made by being a member of of that and to say, all right, that might work with the plebs, but listen, between you and me, your real job is to keep the plebs safe. And I don't care if that means you have to do something that is actually objectively immoral. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, that part kind of, I, I, like the, I like the fact that, that Picard is like, I did the right thing. And she's like, no, you didn't. And she leaves. And then Picard's like, ah, did I do the right thing? He doesn't say, I didn't do the right thing. He says, oh, did I do the right thing? And Riker comes back and says, yeah, you know what? It was risky. It was gutsy. But it was the right thing. Great, great moment. I got nothing else to add there. Um, uh, similar to the, the message that you found, um, don't listen to the voices that promise salvation, especially when you're at your lowest point. That's the whole thing about this bizarre cult-like structure that they've got there, that these, th these beings, these Borg, are desperate, and they will take anything that will seemingly help them. Um, interesting other kind of side note to that is the way that uh, lore is sort of playing data with those emotions like a drug. Very clear sort of uh, uh, parallel to how a junkie needs a fix. It was kind mm -hmm. of bonk bonk on the head in this episode. And yeah, you know, uh, actions have consequences, baby. I mean, that was... <laughs> the, that, that's a big thing in this episode. There was one other thing, too, that I thought of, sort of along the lines of what you were saying earlier about the people that Kirk would, quote, save, end quote, and then just leave. I assume mm -hmm. you were thinking about the feeders of Vol at that point. Sure, yeah. I mean, largely. I mean, there are others that you could say that about as well, but the feeders of Vol yeah. really seem to get the worst of it. Um, yeah. I don't know how true this is as far as our, you know, geopolitics in the 1980s and 90s. Mm -hmm. But in the movie, Charlie Wilson's War, which is also an amazing book, by the way. Um, I read the book, too. It's really, mm -hmm. it's really very good. But in the movie, Charlie Wilson's War, the case that they made was that we went and helped, quote unquote, people in Afghanistan in the early 80s when they were fighting against the Soviet Union. And then... Uh, you know, they ended up defeating or pushing back the Soviet Union. And then we just kind of left them. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, you could argue that that's sort of what Picard did there with uh, with Hugh as well. Yeah. 
And then they're doing it again with you, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. And I'm not saying, and then we should have just stayed and been an occupying force. But maybe at the end when Picard says, so what are you going to do now? Really, shouldn't Picard be saying, listen, do you guys need like a ride or <laughs> assistance? Or is right. there any way that we can help you? Because Hugh has said on more than one occasion in this episode, yeah, you know, maybe we weren't free, but we were cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now mm-hmm. we're free and not cool. We don't know where we're going. We don't know how to eat. We don't have to drive our own ships anymore. Yeah. And Picard's like, you good? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's uh, sorry. I think I think I was actually done and I sort of started again. But no, I, I'm glad you did. I mean, that, that that's the, the whole thing about it, this. The series of events kicked off by the creation of Hugh. Mm-hmm. Um that that have very real consequences that, that you know again that there's right. sometimes not a great perfect answer to this we kind of talked about that uh going back to to tos when we had a private little war there's not a great perfect answer to that episode to the, the yeah. problem in that episode um there's just sort of people in that case kirk in this case picard trying to live up to a principle that's just really fascinating about this story. Yeah, but unless unless season seven is going to be building a new nation with these Borg, then I guess you you pretty much have to have it end with Picard going, All right, well, good luck again. Yeah. You know, which is kind of um it's kind of a drag because we just did a two part episode where that didn't go well. <laughs> <laughs> ah, maybe this time though. Maybe this time. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. There's a lot going on at Roddenberry.com, including the Roddenberry Podcast Network. You can check out Women at Warp and Priority One, along with a little show called Mission Log at podcast.roddenberry.com. Hey, if you want to help support our show, you can go to patreon.com slash mission log. That's the place to do that. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM. That's trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. Next week, Liaisons. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. I think John may have inspired a spin-off in this episode. Tune in every Friday for TJ and the Borg. Check your local listings. And transmission.